come, draw close, and feel the power of the Herdstone. Your best location for Warhammer Fantasy Battle lore, hobby, and gameplay discussion. Well, everyone, welcome to the Herdstone. This is a filler episode. We are getting together as we uh, prepare for some fun things coming up. And Mike and I decided to uh, get together, jump on, and uh, toss out a, a short, fun episode of the Herdstone. So we have only two Bray Shamans here. How are you doing, Mike? Doing great. Looking forward to it. I knew uh, our guy Flammable Hero from the Discord would want us to uh, put up put up some content for him so he can uh, make it through the day. Never enough content for some of our listeners. Yeah, Some of our devoted following. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's always fun to interact with people who who listen. Uh, yeah, so no, you can't... We're, blessed, we're blessed to have the Discord and have all these folks who are uh, interested in you know talking the hobby with us. Yeah, and even if you don't listen anymore after this episode, after Mike and I ruin this for you and you say, I never want to listen again, you can still talk to us at the Discord. We like to have fun there. Uh, and have all sorts of resources. Uh, I'm Kugelfang52 on the Discord, uh, and Mike is Hot Tub Mike on the Discord, so you can always chat with us and the rest of the Hearthstone crew. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, some stuff we have upcoming, but before we talk about what we have uh, soon, uh, we want to talk about our hobby updates. Mike, what have you been working on? Uh, so I have been working on buying, uh, collecting, and uh, putting together and painting uh, some Dogs of War. We've got a very loyal Dogs of War following on the Discord, you know. It's, um, it's disappointing, and I would also like to note that the last thing you've painted was not Dogs of War. So that's true. I'm not well, sure how true all this is. That was, I was, I was going to develop, it was a whole thing I was going to develop, I was going to lead into that. I was just going back to what I'd been working on uh you know, longer ago and then moving forward to what I worked on yesterday. Well, I'm glad that I ruined your plan. Yeah. So a couple few weeks ago, I was painting a bunch of Leopold's Leopard Company, which is a unit of pikemen from Dogs of War, which uh, last had a legal list uh, published in like 2004 uh, in 6th edition, but still still playable in 8th uh, edition and uh, Army Builder is able to uh, let me build some lists on their program so it's it's not too burdensome on me so i was uh painting some leopold's leopard company i have to i have to say this it always cracks me up that people are like oh yeah uh, you can get all this stuff for uh for dogs of war and they're legal and they have this list but also they have some other stuff in random white dwarves and they have this stuff over here in a, in a compendium and you can get it and someone's like well you know can you put all that together and someone <laughs> Ravenclaws will show up and say, oh, yeah, here, here it all is, and it's all in French. <laughs> and it just cracks me up because uh, they're not a real faction, and you can only get them in French. Yeah, our, our buddy Ravenclaws, uh, who is French uh, on the Discord, he's a big proponent of, of the Dogs of War, and uh, kind of the, the Discord Dogs of War uh, leader, some would say. Borgia the Besieger uh, might, might have something to say, but he, he only pops in every once in a while. But it's true that he put together a compilation that took uh, as the basis of it, I think, the 2004 compendium, which has the last official Dogs of War list, and then various White Dwarf articles that would have a unit and here or there, and it would have the points and would have the rules. And uh, they, they put together a, a PDF, um, which is a, a nice amalgamation. I, I haven't used it. 
I'm like kind of a stickler, so I, I'm only going to use the 2004 uh, compendium to list build, but it's a good resource. Wait, so you're going to use a 2004 army and still like cripple yourself by not being able to play some of the extra stuff? <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. too much. There's that's, no, out, that's outside uh, the bounds. What is the uh, Ogre Calvary? I, I, I'm not going to be able to access them. They're not in there. Oh yeah, the the Rhinox. The is it Rhinoxen or is it the Saber Tusks? I don't know what goes. The Rhinox Riders, I think it is. Okay, I think that might be it. Um, but uh, yeah, so if you read the 2004 Compendium with the Dogs of War, uh, you know it very much says like this is a temporary list that you know at some point we're going to get around to uh, publishing an army book, and it's like you know 19 years later, and uh, we're, we're still waiting. Well, you know if Dogs of War players had paid more. They could have gotten their dogs for. It's funny when they did the uh, update at uh, Warhammer World, and uh, someone asked about dogs of war, and they were like, "Yeah, probably not." <laughs> the wait continues. Hey, yeah, they're, they're honest though. They're honest. Yeah. All right. So yeah, you've been painting the dogs of war. You've got that one orc who looks great. Yeah, I painted an orc. I'm 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 bringing orcs into uh, my my goblin army. I'm, I'm slowly but surely I. I bought some orc sculpts and I'm starting to paint them and I ordered a foot template and a giant fallen over template from, from, a, from an online vendor. And so I'm looking forward to uh, being able to cast foot of gork on people here in the future. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing with regards to hobby updates, uh, the dogs of war and, and some orcs. Uh, how about you, Ryan? What have, what have you been working on? Uh, so, we one of the reasons that we're doing this pod today is we do have a tournament coming up and a while back probably about a month and a half ago two months ago uh, i just decided i wanted to paint something other than rats which is what i had been painting and uh i started a little bit on some tomb kings and got some color schemes i liked but i was like oh well i'm not going to be able to get an army of them before this tournament but i still didn't want to paint what i was going to take for the tournament so i decided to paint a tree man and I liked it. And then I decided to paint dryads and make sure I had a scheme for dryads and then tree kin that I made out of, uh, Kernoth hunters from the Sylvaneth range for AOS took the swords off and gave them little arms or hands, uh, to use for tree kin. And so I made a forest spirit army and then just started painting on it over the past month and a half and decided that I would take it to the tournament, even though I had none of it done before, you know, two months ago. So I have about 18 dryads left and little, little tiny bits on two characters. Um, but I've painted quite a bit. Uh, we'll talk about our lists in a little while. Uh, but I've been painting up this, this forest spirit army, um, for, for the, the tournament. So I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I got a quick color scheme that I liked and I thought looked good. So I'm pretty happy with it. I haven't gotten any games in uh, recently. And unfortunately, it's been quite some time since I've gotten to play. So that's a little disappointing. Uh, what about you, Mike? Have you gotten to play recently? Yeah, I have. Uh, your Forest Speed Army looks great. And it's very uh, charitable of you and decent of you to uh, produce a Wood Elf list that is uh, – less shooting and offensive than, than usual. But, I have uh, I have really oppressive tree man shooting, uh, yeah. and that's it. Ryan Two. likes to make these funky lists that people haven't seen that surprise them with like uh, different synergies that Ryan has cooked up by studying the army book. So people get forward 
uh, come up forward to uh, that. Yeah, it's it'll be fun. Uh, it'll be interesting. It's probably not going to work real well because I've never used it before. But we'll talk more about that. But tell us about your games. What have you gotten to do? Yeah, actually, the last two Saturdays, uh, I've gotten games in with a friend from elementary school, my uh, good buddy Eric. We started playing Warhammer Fantasy together in sixth grade. And uh, after everything collapsed in 2015, uh, the gaming group I was with kind of died. And I reached out to a couple of my buddies from who I'd started playing the game with to because we 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 interacted socially outside of Warhammer. And so I, I kind of kicked them back into the game by getting them to play with me. And uh, Eric's a good friend of mine, and he has Warriors of Chaos Army that he built in uh, 2016, 2017, and, you know, kind of one of these things where he's never changed the list. But, you know, it's not that big a deal. We like to uh, get together and, and socialize and, and play. And I've been using my Dark Elves. Just toss some dice. And, and I know what he's going to bring. Um, you know, <laughs> it's a you know, it's not a bad list. It's got two units of Skull Crushers. It's got nurgle everything except the skull crushers and you know it's got death and uh so it's not you know it on the swedish comp i'm sure it's you know pretty fairly low but uh but there, there's also something to like knowing what someone's gonna bring not that you tailor your list against him but you know how he plays it you know what he's yeah, there was, he actually fled earlier today with a unit that I was like, wow, he never flees. And then it kind of put me in a bad spot. I was like, he's learned it. You can teach him. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. but uh, so for, the, for the last two weeks, uh, both our games, um, I, I played the Dark Elf list that I'm going to take to War Games Con, which is a one-day uh, Warhammer Fantasy Battles tournament, uh, 2,500 points, 8th edition, that is part of uh, a con, War Games Con, in uh, Bastrop, Texas. And so myself, Brian from the Discord, uh, from the Discord and, and the podcast, and uh, Ryan Kugelfang, our, our host here, are uh, all signed up and looking forward to driving over to Bastrop next Friday to play some play a one day three game tournament, uh, play some new people, maybe play each other, just depending on how it goes. I think there's about twenty people signed up, so. We might end up playing each other, maybe just three new people. And we hope our friend Shane can go. We're not quite sure on that, but uh, there's a lot to look forward to next week with regards to fantasy battles. Yeah. Uh, it's If if I end up playing you, I'm in trouble because you know my, my tricks and uh, you know what I'm planning with this list. You know how it works. Uh, and it's a list that things have to surprise people uh, to work, but... Uh, and I have not gotten to play it. That's the other thing. I will not have any practice with what I'm taking, even though it's uh, I've played Wood Elf before, but this will be very different. It's all theory. It is theory. So that that does bring us to uh, this this tournament, War Games Con that we're going to. Um, how did you start prepping for this tournament, Mike? Where did we Where did we first find out about this? Did I find out about this? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know if someone. I feel like it, I was I was definitely I was definitely invited to there is a discord that is involved with Central Texas and and the War Games Con. I forget. I think it was me who was first and I think I might have let you guys know. But uh or it might have been on the the Houston Discord may have. And so we kind of got uh hooked up with this somehow via the internet's and uh we uh we said we tried to get our guys together and get over there and it, it's pretty much worked out a couple of guys have, have, haven't been able to make it but uh 
yeah, it's going to be at least three of us. So we, yeah, we decided, Hey, we're going to, we're going to try to get there. We're going to do this once we found out about it. Um, I always really struggle to, to pick a list or pick an army, uh, that I'm going to take. Um, in, in the case of this, I actually was, was limited. I play lizard men a lot, but, uh, I don't feel like my lizard men army hobby wise is up to where I wanted it to be. I like, the bases, I tried something with them and then didn't like it, but I left them there and some stuff is in states of disrepair. So I wasn't as happy with it. And so I thought I'd take either the vampire counts or the Skaven that I've just done. And, you know, I have a few models that I need to finish up, but I could do that easily because I had three months or whatever. Um, but we found out that uh, this tournament was going to have a short turnaround on, on time. So the, the games were going to be really abbreviated. Um, a lot of tournaments, what do you think, Mike? Three hours is pretty yeah, common. Yeah, most tournaments, tournaments are tight on time. It's always a, a problem. Uh, you frequently in the tournament scene will have people ending their games on turn four or five just because of time. And those... Right, and sometimes complaints of yeah, slow playing, um, right? That, you know, some people might, if they're ahead slow play or to get an extra turn or whatever. Right, of course, you have good. some elements of unsporting behavior in every group of people, but generally speaking, it's just because tournaments aren't able to adequately give enough time to fully play six turns of Warhammer Fantasy, which sometimes can take two hours if it's two people who know what they're doing and their armies are quick, and sometimes it can take four or plus hours. It's just kind of effect. There's a lot of different factors there. Right. And so one of the factors that I was aware of was VC and Skaven are both armies that can take a longer amount of time. They're both horde armies. Uh, Skaven, my VC, I, I'm still not comfortable with how I play them. Um, my my Skaven, they, it, there's so many weird interactions. There's a long FAQ, all that stuff. I just didn't feel like I could get games in real fast with my Skaven. And so uh, I wanted to take an army that I could do quickly and I could do that with my lizardmen, but they weren't up to hobby snuff. And so ultimately what I decided uh, was to go with this. Uh, so I thought about taking my warriors of chaos, but I never just, just never got into hobbying the, you know, I have a chariot and a war altar and a few chosen that I need to finish painting. And I still just never got into the mindset to want to paint, them because I like an idiot chose white as a color for them. Uh, so I painted up a, uh, forest spirit army. So it is a, it is an army that is supposed to be all forest spirits. Um, and that's what I chose for this. And then of course painted them white, which is, I guess a, an irony, uh, but a very different white. So how did you choose? what? Yeah. I, to, I, I thought of a lot of the same considerations that you did. Um, Firstly, you think about the state of your armies. I've got about six armies that I kind of rotate between, and they're all in some sort of state between 50 and 90% painted and ready to go. And so it's kind of a consideration of which army do you feel most comfortable with painted, hobby ready to go? Which army do you think plays fast enough? Which army do you think is going to perform well? And which army do you enjoy and what do you feel like playing at the tournament and so 
I'd been working on these dark elves uh, for a long time, the last uh, you know year or so, and I'd been painting them a lot. And I played them in March at our uh, annual invitational that we play, and I had a lot of fun with it. And I was toying around with uh, the idea between the Bretonians and the dark elves, really, about what I was going to take uh, to this tournament. And I ended up going with the dark elves because I'd run you know, the same or a similar list back in March and everything was painted and based and everything looked great. And I was just, I was ready to roll it, roll it out. And, uh, everything else, my beastmen, my goblins, my vampires, um, those types of armies would, would need some work. And they just, they weren't quite there. And the easiest option was to go with the dark elves. And also you kind of look at if you're in a discord or you kind of have a sense of what other people are taking, you know, if I see like three other people are bringing vampire counts and I know it's going to be a small tournament, I'm just like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to bring vampire counts as well. I let me see if I can bring an army that's going right. to widen the field of different armies people could see. And I don't think anyone else is bringing dark elves, so I'm happy to you know give people that you know potential option to play a army that they're not going to see otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. I would like to point out that I did not put uh, the ability of my list to win as one of the qualifications. Um, and the reason for that is, uh, well, in, in this case, I did not pick a a list or an army that's typically seen as good, but I think there's going to be some tricksiness to it. So uh, why don't we talk about our army lists that we're taking and uh, I'll share with mine first. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds great. You go ahead. All right. So I think I mentioned it's a forest spirit list, but I, I did have to uh, go outside my rule of forest spirits only just a little bit because in the 8th edition Wood Elf book, uh, forest spirits, none of the forest spirit characters can take magic items. Um, and so what that means is, is that all the tricksy magic items that seem like they would you know, uh, work with forests are not available to forest spirits. So your characters that you can have are a tree man, ancient and uh, branch uh, wraiths. And you can also have some special characters drew through um, and Drica. Um, but none of those can take their own particular or can take magic items from the book. And so I wanted to take three magic items. I wanted to take the acorn of the ages, which gives me D three forests to put out at the beginning of the game. And I can pick the type of magical forest. They are the moonstone of the hidden ways, which is at the end of a, of a uh, movement phase. If I have a, the unit that has the model with the moonstone in it uh, and they're in a forest, totally in a forest, I can move them to a different forest as long as they're within or, or a, at least one inch away from any enemy models. Uh, and then uh, Kalangor's stave, which effectively gives a spell, which used to be, or I guess, which is called tree singing, uh, which allows me to either move a forest D six inches or D six plus one inches, or if an enemy unit is in a forest or with the big bubble version within forest within 12 inches of the user, uh, then they take some damage. So these are all kind of tricksy things to do with forests, and I wanted to take all of them, which means that uh, in my list, I have three elves, even though the models that I'm using and proxying for them are still forest spirit looking. So I have a uh, wood elf lord on an eagle, and he's got the acorn of ages, which is 100 points, and so that's why he had to be there, and I just uh, he's going to go around flying around making a nuisance of himself, 
I have a tree man ancient. <clears throat> I have Drica to do some tricksy stuff with bringing units out in forests. And I have two branch rates uh, with the lore of beasts to cast. Uh, one of them has Kalangor's stave and the other is Moons, uh, the Moonstone. And they're just going to cast Wizens. Three units of Dryads, uh, one one six-man unit of Treekin, and then two tree men. And so, you know, the main focus of this army is uh, don't get caught um, in battles that I don't want to be in and instead set myself up to to be able to, you know, get multiple units into combat with one of my opponent's units uh, by using forests and, and doing all sorts of stuff with the Moonstone moving me around and hurting my opponent when they're in forests. So that's the goal. We'll see how it works. Do you have any thoughts? No, it just seems like uh, from knowing you the last couple of years and, and the way you build lists, it definitely seems like a pretty um, typical thing. Or typical, not in a bad way, but you know, kind of a standard Ryan going through the army book and trying to figure out synergies and like off the beaten path kind of, well, this kind of works with this to help you do this. Uh, type of things that other people wouldn't necessarily uh, think about. And I don't know if the authors of the, uh, of the books even really thought about. Yeah, that's probably why they didn't have those items available. But um, I do know like one, I guess one thing I do is like, I limit myself with what I am willing to play a lot of times. And so I'll say like, Oh, I'm going to play lizardman but I'm not going to play with the slon most of the time, right? And so I might get a slon so I can play occasionally, but I'll, I want to play without it. I don't like that as much. Or I want just monsters as much as possible or all skeletons in VC. And I don't know why. Um, and so you're right. I do like those combos, but at the same time, I feel like if I just went all out on combos and alt- like um, optimization, that... I wouldn't have as much fun and I'd feel bad or I'd get upset if it didn't work exactly right. And so I often limit myself. So like for this list, there's all the the weird janky stuff, but there's no, no way watchers and there's no wild riders to come in and, and slam a, which are two great units um, that would benefit from this style of play. Um, so yeah, it's, I feel like I'm a little weird. No, I, I totally get where you're coming from. I think we're, we're both the same way in in that um, we spend a lot of time thinking about Warhammer Fantasy Battles. Uh, the game's really important to us and our hobbies and kind of how we spend our time. And we know what is best and we know what is optimized and we know that we could take those things and how to do it. It's just you make a conscious decision to say, you know, that is how am I going to make this enjoyable both for myself and for my opponent? And if, I, if I'm going to win, I want to win in such a way it's not that I just used the most optimized beat stick to mathematically bludgeon my opponent, but really did it in a way that, yes, I'm trying to win, but I want to do it in a way that I'm proud of. And also I want my opponent to feel like they have a good chance to win and that they're not just getting beat up on with some sort of mathematically optimized uh, unit selections. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell people like the, the worst thing that can happen is when your new army book comes out and suddenly like the play style you loved is just super good and OP. And then you just feel like you can't play that anymore because that's no fun to just have a list that 
runs itself or beats everybody. Yeah, I, I don't subscribe to the I don't subscribe to the yeah, raffle like, stomp uh, list type of things, and we'll talk about this later when we talk about tournaments. But um, yeah, there's there's kind of a, a kind of a code that some some people in the gaming community have with regards to how they are willing to build lists and how they were how they want to play the game. Right. Okay. So, well, tell us about your list. What are you bringing? Yeah, so I'm bringing uh, my Dark Elf army. Um, as you know, for, for many years, I, I played pretty much goblins, beastmen, um, and Bretonians is kind of uh, the main armies that I would use. I also use vampire accounts. Um, but I kind of got the itch about 18 months ago to play Dark Elves. Uh, my theory of Warhammer was kind of that um, I always liked the combination of Slanesh and Dark Elves, kind of the the harkens back to the storm of chaos with uh, uh, the cult of Slanesh list. Yeah. And I always thought that inter- interaction between Slanesh and dark elves was interesting and cool. And then the eighth edition book came out and you had the Doomfire warlocks, which just kind of uh, fleshed that out a little more. And so I, I always wanted to do that. And my, my theory on eighth edition Warhammer fantasy was that dark elves, while very good because they have these innate rules like murderous prowess and always strikes first that just make them powerful uh, they, they're not as oppressive or as powerful as wood elves or high elves. And so I was comfortable building dark elves and, and bringing a dark elf list because I thought, yes, it's elves, but it's not the most uh, unpleasant elves, especially the way I intend right. to run them. So what the first thing I do is uh, I take a, I think a not the best option. I take a dreadlord, which you're not, traditionally going to see in, in a lot of lists because a high elf fighting lord is generally not the best option so it wait did you just call your army high elves <laughs> no, no. you did it's dark elves. oh mistake you went to all, i guess you're the true high elves right <laughs> do we win in the right. end i didn't read the end times but i think they do i i, I think i think malika so I have a Dreadlord. He's on so. foot. He's got the Sword of Striking, which gives him a, a plus one to hit. I only had 15 points left, and I wanted to give him a magic weapon just in case I, I run into a lot of ethereal. I think there's good... Sorry. And I, I would say if if you do have 15 points left and you are you have a character that has decent strength or whatever, Sword of Striking is a great one just to toss on there. Like if you And if you only have 10 points but can get five more, I think it's worth yeah, it I, to jump he, up to He's that. only strength four, so he's not going to be effective against a lot of stuff. Um, but I really wanted the magical attacks because I think there's going to be a few vampire count armies and Dark Elves don't innately really have magical attacks available to them. So if you, if I would, I would like, uh, sorry to interrupt again, but uh, if they do have a lot of ethereal, I'm going to laugh with my forest spirits because all of my attacks are magical. I will die if someone has banner of the world track. <laughs> yeah. But, so uh, I, I was just, you know, running through what I, what I thought I might see. And, you know, you would need to have some considerations for ethereal. If you can't just rely on a Ruby ring or, um, a magic missile because magic is fickle. You need to have a, one or two characters that can uh, can do it. And so that's why I gave him the Sword of Striking. I gave him the Armor of Destiny to give him a 4-up ward. Uh, I want to keep him alive because he gives me Leadership 10. And also importantly, I gave him the Crown of Command. So he needs to stay alive as best he can. So I got to, I got him to a 2-up armor save and a 4-up ward save. And I'm going to stick him in one of my two primary units just to make sure that they stick around as, as best they can. Um, the Crown of Command is obviously a, a, a great 
item for that and kind of one of the better uh, big rulebook items. And and then after the Dreadlord, I have the uh, Supreme Sorceress. I gave her the Talisman of Preservation, which is controversial amongst some people. Uh, some people don't believe in giving your wizard award save. They think... Well, one person, one person doesn't believe you should give Ravenclaw your... said that uh, apparently in other discords uh, that there, it's, there's d- divisions, or maybe somebody else said that, but... Uh, he's, he's the division. That's it. He's the division. He's like, he's like if... if if you've gotten your wizard into a position where they can be attacked in close combat, then they deserve to die. <laughs> and so I, I usually put my I don't I don't hide my wizard in the back. I usually put them in one of my fighting blocks. So um, you know, if you can keep them alive even for an extra half a turn, it can make all the difference. So I gave them the four board save, uh, gave them the ruby ring. Uh, just it's always good to have the ruby ring in your army to have a magic missile that you know you're going to get and that can pop a spirit host or, uh, you know, hit some trolls with, um, or something that has regen hit a, uh, help it abomination or some flammable tree can and tree man. Yeah. Some flammable tree can and tree man. Is flammable still a rule? Is that, is that, yes. Oh, oh no. Yeah. Double, double wounds against my fellows. Okay. Yeah. And he's got a dispel scroll as well. Um, and then my only hero choice, I have a master who's my BSB and, uh, he's got the sword of might, He's got the Enchanted Shield and the Dawnstone and the uh, Scaly Skin, uh, sorry, the uh, Dragon Sea sea Dragon Cloak, Dragon Sea Cloak. So he gets up to a one-up re-rollable, but uh, no ward save. So you really want to keep your BSB alive at all hazards if you can in a game of Warhammer Fantasy. So uh, it's important to try to get him to something like a one-up re-rollable that makes him very difficult to kill with his high weapon skill. He's hard to hit. And uh, he will hopefully be stuck around for a while, giving you that all-important reroll. So, if you have one, yeah, those are my characters. I don't think it's it's too bad uh, from the standpoint. There's no um, kind of optimal dark elf list. You're going to see uh, one or two masters on Pegasus with the uh, cloak of twilight, uh, just kind of flying around, being nasty, doing nasty stuff. Uh, the supreme sorceress doesn't have the sack dagger. Uh, or the dra- or the dragon egg. So you know uh, the level four's got shadow. So that is a great, fantastic lore for dark elves. So it's 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 not soft or anything, but it's also uh, it. I understand there are other builds and other things that I can take to uh, make it a little nastier. Yeah. And then if you go down to core, um, my big kind of primary unit, in my army is I have thirty nine dread spears. Uh, that's kind of uh, I, I deploy them in horde formation. You can put them in a in a, in a block if you wanted. Uh, this is where my BSB and my level four and maybe my dreadlord will go, just kind of depending on what things look like. I give them the banner of swiftness, uh, so their movement six. So um, that just kind of gives you some flexibility with regards to to movement and charges and stuff. And this is going to be my primary fighting block. Um, what you're going to do here is you're going to have your level four and hopefully they are going to be able to effectuate um, slants in your favor in combat with the spells like the withering or Occam's mind razor or enfeebling foe or miasma. These are all spells in shadow that can really tilt a combat. One reduces strength, one reduces toughness, one makes you incredibly strong. Your leadership becomes your strength. And then one can reduce weapon skill, initiative, ballistic skill, movement, so this spell is fantastic, or this lore is fantastic. Um, 
once you get into turns three and four and can start uh, uh, tilting combats in your favor. You know, they're, they're not naturally that strong with the weapon skill four strength three, but with the re-rolling ones and uh, fighting in uh, four ranks with spears and horde formation, you're going to get a lot of attacks, decent weapon skill. If you can get one or two of those spells off, you're going to be in a really good spot. So they, I think... Yeah. So one one thing I think that's overlooked, you said with the withering and enfeebling foe, uh, if I remember correctly, those are remains in play. Am I right on those? Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's people don't think about it. There's there's always the risk that right you're going to go in on your turn, you're going to cast withering or enfeebling foe in, in the round of combat that you're in right then, and then your opponent is going to. Um, dispel them on their turn with their magic phase. Uh, and so you're not going to get the same as with uh, other hexes or whatnot, where, you know, you get this round that you just started and your opponents. But uh, what I do think that they offer as remains in play is a real defensive mechanism. You put those on early in the game, even if you're not shooting or whatnot, and they stop your opponent from using as much of their own magic phase. And I think that can be a really beneficial aspect of those remains in play. You can get them early, and if your opponent ignores them, then they might be on there when you really want them, and then you don't even have to cast them. You can you can add on. Uh, so I think they're they're interesting in a very different way than traditional hexes that are not remains in play that are just one turn kind of hexes. No, you make a great point. Um, miasma which is going to reduce weapon skill, ballistic skill, initiative, and movement is something that they can't get rid of uh, right. on their turn. And Occam's Mind Razor, which makes your leadership, your strength, which is going to be 8, 9, or 10, um, is something they can't get rid of. But Enfeebling Foe and the Withering are something they can get rid of, but they're naturally pretty high casting values. I think uh, what Enfeebling Foe is the reduction in strength, and that's the less good, that's uh, quote-unquote the less good one. And... Uh, that's on a 10. And I think the withering is like a 13, which is reduction in toughness. The withering is a lot more applicable because it helps with shooting as well. Um, you reduce, if you can reduce somebody's toughness, you can shoot them easier. Uh, reducing their strengths only really going to gonna matter uh, in the case of um, close combat or potentially a dwellers below. But um, so, yeah, like you were saying, if in their turn they have to spend three or four dice to get rid of the Withering, that's three or four dice they're not using to cast their own buffs to make them better in combat. And so, yeah, you are. it's a great defense mechanism. It's forcing them to use dice in a situation that they wouldn't want to. So moving, moving on in the list, normally, um, you know, I guess, quote-unquote, an optimized kind of Dark Elf list well, I guess it depends how you see things. I think an optimized Dark Elf list is basically all cavalry, but in a quote-unquote optimized Dark Elf list, which you would see commonly in 8th edition, you would have about 800 points stuck, in, uh, stuck into a unit of about 40 Witch Elves, which were core, and then you would have a Cauldron of Blood with a Death Hag on there, who is also your BSB, or um, the special character... Um, whose name escapes me. Hellebron. Hellebron. And that would be about 800 points, and that would be kind of where you were deciding to build your list kind of totally around that. Um, I don't really want to do that, and I don't really like it, and I don't... I don't. I think a lot of people don't think it's very fun. I think... Um, 
I don't believe in it. I don't like frenzy. I don't want anything. It's also not your play style at all. Yeah. I don't, I don't like a bunch of toughness three, witch elves running around with basically no save except the five up ward save, just getting shot turn after turn and, you know, just going forward and trying to dice stuff up. And I don't believe in frenzy from a gameplay standpoint. I don't want anything frenzied really in my army. Um, so if I'm sinking half my army's points into a frenzy unit, that's just asking uh, for trouble with regards to being trapped and outmaneuvered by a smart player. So, you know, if someone has two units of skull crushers, you know, that's kind of scary, right? Because they're great units, but at the same time, they have the liability of frenzy and being forced to overrun and to be put into positions where they can get flanked and defeated easily, despite their obvious uh, strength and advantages. So I, I could definitely see a situation where um, you would get this dark, this Woodtail bus, um, which is half your army, and you're forcing them to overrun into a position where they can, you know, take a an, a disadvantageous flank charge or a rear charge or something. Right. So I don't I don't subscribe to that. Um, the rest of my core is I have a, a unit of ten dark shards. Um, I'm not a really big a believer in dark shards. I don't. I think the the minus one for repeating and the fact that they're 24 inch range, you're usually hitting on fives or sixes with these crossbows. They're okay, but they're not. It you you really at the end of the day, you don't get a lot of wounds out of a unit of dark shards. They look impressive with their 20 shots, but um, they're usually hitting on five or sixes because you're usually at long range. You're usually double tapping, and there might be another modifier like skirmish or soft cover or movement. So it's a lot of it's not uncommon to be hit on sixes, and then if you have a if you have a bunch of them at the right spot when you get the withering off on a unit, then they can really mince it. But because it's it is a lot of shots again, like you said, it's on fives and whatever. So you know if they get the withering, they can do something um, really nasty. But other than that, not as much. And this is kind of a little nasty in my list, as I have three units of five dark riders. Um, Two of them have a four-up save with light armor shield and mounted. One of them has a, a five-up. I just didn't have the five points, I guess. And so they also have crossbows. So fast cav in 8th edition uh, is just really strong. You have 18-inch uh-huh. movement. Uh, Elven steeds are movement nine, and they can march, and you get free reforms. So you can basically, you know, if you're... If your model fits 50 millimeters somewhere, you can put them in a line and just kind of go in between uh, units and reform and uh, shift around in any way that you see fit. And so they can skirt around you. They can make you do things you don't want to do, um, forcing you into movement problems. And they're not terrible when they charge. Uh, Weapon skill four, strength four with spears on the charge. Uh, you know, re-rolling to hit, re-rolling ones to wound, um, you know, they'll they'll surprise you with a little bit of punch. So they are definitely good units. Just in more pestering little uh, crossbow shots, just taking wounds off you here and there. Uh, but they can also lead to tilt. Like, they can really throw someone off their game just enough to, to make them make some big mistakes. Mm-hmm. Like, that's... Uh, fast Cav can, if, when used well, and you use yours well... Uh, can really make people alter their game plan, and and that's good for you. Brian, uh, our, our our co-host, he spends so much time worried about 
uh, fast cab when he's playing his games because he, he has an orcs and goblins army who has you know four or five war machines and he's trying to protect his war machines like uh you know it, it's just <laughs> it's really very difficult to try to uh you know keep fast cav from getting to your war machines and he's always yeah. frustrated by that but i play bretonians and i try to protect my trebuchets but a lot of people have kind of the theory that you know if, if fast cav or flyers are going to get to my war machines then you know that's okay you know that right that they'll, they'll serve their purpose for one or two turns and the returns on war machines the later the game goes is going to be less than at the first three yeah. turns anyways but yeah uh, i kind of feel if you can if you can delay them getting to your to your war machines to turn four you've you've done pretty well if they've you know if they've got you outnumbered in fast cab or flyers or whatever and you can delay them that long you're yeah. you're doing fine or if you have a bunch of cheap artillery like goblins uh you know giving up a couple to save the rest is also good yeah and the the way a game of warhammer fantasy works if you get to turn four and beyond the amount of uh, targets of opportunity are going to be a lot less and a lot of your battle line is going to get into combat and so there's just after you get to that point you know yeah sure sometimes there'll be good targets but usually at a far lesser rate than in the first two three turns so do you have do you have fast cap? Do you have artillery? I do. Yeah. If you move down into special, uh, the first unit I have is five harpies, which I don't think is an optimal choice. Uh, they're seventy five points. You're you're kind of close to uh, five dark riders, which is um, basically ninety points. So which are probably better, but um, I like having harpies in my beastman army and my dark elf army to sit behind my main blocks to act as emergency redirectors if there's a situation that I see coming that I need some redirecting to happen <laughs> in case that's right. if, if there's a situation that's arising where I'm like, well, this combat is not going to go great. I'm just going to pop these harpies over. Um, or what if there was a mangler squig yeah. that uh, was, was coming at you? Would you sacrifice some harpies? Yeah, I actually did that to Brian a, a few weeks ago. I, I sat some harpies on a, on a mangler squig. And uh, you can't let a mangler squig get to your, to your main units because that's just real bad news. It's like 3d6 strength 6 hits. And uh, yeah. then I have, I have three repeater bolt throwers. Uh, that's a lot. I, I prefer not to. But kind of the state of my collection right now is I prefer to have a cold one chariot in place of one and find some other points somewhere else. But just kind of where I'm at with what I have painted and stuff, I, I, I'm kind of s- stuck with the re- three repeater bolt throwers. And I'm not, that's a really good thing. I don't, you know, I'm not saying it's bad. It, it's the opposite of bad. I wish I could tone it down a little bit because these are very good war machines for 70 points. They're very flexible. You can suit the single shot or you can shoot the six shot. And so you can deal with fast calf. You can deal with monsters. The blitz skill is excellent. They hit on a three if they're within 24 inches, which is very good odds of hitting things. And so they'll take out chariots on single shots. They'll mess up uh, fast calf. They'll mess up uh, knights because of strength four armor piercing or just the single bolt and ignores armor. So they're very flexible and they're very reliable and they only have two wounds so they, they're not going to live uh if they get hit by anything but they're 70 points they're an excellent they're an excellent war machine yeah 
They're really, really good. And then uh, a couple more units. I have a War Hydra with Fiery Breath. So I've discovered that uh, the War Hydra is really most effective against infantry. Um, it has a Thunder Stomp. It has a lot of attacks, um, Weapon Skull 4, Strength 5. Uh, so far, I've found that um, it's best against infantry. It doesn't really have a regen or a ward save. It has a special rule which allows it to regrow wounds at the end of your phase uh, on a 4-up. But uh, it's not going to live uh, if it gets hit probably by... It has 5 wounds, but if it gets hit by a cannonball or a, something like that, it's it's not going to have a save. Um yeah, so, slightly slightly worse than that region because it only procs at the end of the the turn. So. Yeah, I think it's only on the Dark Elf player's turn as well. So, oh, I think okay. it's you know you have to wait two rounds. Two rounds, yeah. and so yeah, it's not a bad rule, but it's just uh, it suffers from having no regen or having no ward save, which is what makes monsters generally upper tier uh, in Eighth Edition. Yeah, and then I've got uh, twenty five executioners. Um, might put my lord in here to make them stubborn, but I gave them the war banner, um, a full command. I've discovered that these guys are pretty good if you can get them in against uh, monstrous cavalry or knights or things that don't have a ton of attacks. What I'm trying to not do is get them involved with infantry, especially cheap infantry, because yeah. cheap infantry have enough attacks at a high enough strength to do them a lot of damage because they're only T3 and they only have a five up save. So if you like get in with marauders or goblins or something like that, like, yeah, the executioners will kill some, but it's not a good trade. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a unit. My dryads want to get into. Yeah. And uh, then for my rare selection, I have uh, five doom, one unit of five doom fire warlocks, which um, is a very excellent, unit um i try to limit that to uh you know one small unit because you don't want to be too oppressive with the uh, doomfire warlocks you're saying you're if you were doing the optimal fast cav army you'd have two of those yeah you would have basically all your rare points would be uh doomfire warlocks and for each rank of doomfire warlocks you have it's like a plus one to your uh casting role so people will bring like you know uh two or three ranks, which makes them even more potent uh, wizards. And uh, they'll put masters on dark steeds in the front and you'll have a character front and you'll have these like big units of fast cap, just rolling around, casting spells, uh, trying to six dice stuff because the miscast is really not bad for Doomfire Warlocks. What happens is it's D3 wounds, but then you get your four up ward save. So yeah. it's if you roll a one and then you roll your four ports and nothing happens, you know, and that's not an unreasonable scenario. And their their uh, their spells that they have, they they have access to two spells. Yeah, it's Doom Bolt, uh, Doom Bolt, which is two d six strength five hits within eighteen inches, or you can do the big version. Um, it goes off on like a twenty four or something, but what you're going to probably do is six dice it, and uh, then it's forty six strength five hits. And uh, Power of Darkness is the other one, and I think that's just plus one strength plus one toughness or something. That's my list. The, uh, the idea is to fight. Um, the idea is to be stubborn with the Dreadlord, uh, either in the Spearmen or the Executioners, and to get the Executioners into favorable matchups and to get the Spearmen into favorable matchups and then hopefully have a good magic phase in turn three or four and really tilt the 
combat into your favor by reducing your opponent's, you know, weapon skill, strength, toughness, or really uh, boosting your own uh, strength with Mind Razor. And then with the natural ability of the elves to re-roll with always strikes first and then re-roll ones to wound, um, you know, you can really put a lot of pain out. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And Power Darkness is plus one to strength, but then you can get some more dice. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 good for just a bonus plus to strength, and then you might get the dice used to cast it back. Yeah, because Doomfire Warlocks are strength four poison um, with two attacks base, so they're not bad. Um, no. But if you can go from strength four to strength five, that's a big that's a big difference. Yeah, that's a big difference with regards to wounding stuff, and it's a big difference with regards to armor saves your opponents are going to get. Yep. 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 All right. So those are uh, the lists that that we have. Um, we want to talk about, we, we opened up, uh, some user questions. We opened up the discord user questions. And one of the questions was, uh, essentially it was, uh, what's a tournament like and, uh, how do, how do people treat each other, uh, at the, the tournaments? Um, what, what was your experience? Um, what's the etiquette and how seriously is it taken? Mike, you, you mentioned something regarding kind of the, the, not the camaraderie, but the way that a lot of people, though not all, approach tournaments and kind of unspoken rules or suggestions. Tell, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think the first thing I would explain to people who weren't around when 8th edition was around is you kind of have two types of tournaments in Warhammer Fantasy. You would have one-day tournaments at your uh, friendly local game store, your FLGS, and, you know, that would happen once a month or once every quarter or something, uh, depending how it was organized. And you would show up, uh, you know, at 9 or 10 in the morning. You'd play three games over the course of a day. And it would just be, you know, local people who frequent your game store or live in your city. And there might be a prize. There might not. Um, it might cost $10 or $20. It, it might not. And then you have um, grand tournaments, which generally... You're going to be divided in, you used to be in 8th edition, divided into regions of the United States. We lived in Texas and we had a region and there would be about four grand tournaments a year. And these are frequently in the major cities in your region. So Dallas had Lone Wolf Grand Tournament in the in the spring. Houston had Bayou Battles in August. Um, uh, Alamo was in November, which was in San Antonio. And... Uh, Austin would have a tournament, not always. And then we had Carnival of Chaos in New Orleans one year. So those were two-day tournaments, and they would be, like, usually rented at, like, a Marriott or something, the ballroom. You would have, you know, people would generally roll into town on Friday night. You would have some Friday night open gaming at the ballroom of the Marriott Hotel or whatever uh, the venue was. And then usually people would rent rooms there at the hotel, and uh, on Saturday morning, you'd get up, you'd go down to the ballroom, and you'd play three games on Saturday. And then you'd play two games on Sunday. And you really got to know the community because you guys were traveling together. You were staying together. You would eat lunch together. And then on Saturday nights, you know, you would go uh, to the bars or uh, socialize together at restaurants. And so there was, you know, clubs and cliques that were kind of formed in this way. And you would meet people around the region. Um, you would travel with your friends from your city or your gaming club. 
And I did this uh, for a couple of years, and I think you did it a little bit as well, right, Ryan? Yeah, I was I was certainly less in, involved had fewer or able to go. Um, I certainly would have loved to. Uh, it's just uh, not able to. But yeah, I went to about four or five, um, a couple at you know Dallas uh, Lone Wolf, and and then I traveled down to Bayou and to Alamo a couple times. Um, and so I yeah I enjoyed getting to know the the community, knowing some of the people, and just uh, uh, seeing that side was. Uh, really enjoyable for me. So, uh, how, yeah, like uh, you'd also, they had rankings, right? Yeah. So these tournaments would usually be somewhere between 70 and 100 gamers. And, you know, if you went to Lone Wolf in Dallas and you went to Bayou Battles in Houston and you went to Alamo GT in San Antonio, you're generally seeing, you know, two thirds of the field are probably the same group of people, people who are willing to travel for these things. And then an extra third is just locals who, you know, kind of fill in, fill in the gap. And, uh, so it's, you know, 70 to a hundred guys, you see them three or four times a year, you know, for five or six years and you get to know them, they get to know you. And it, it's really a nice little gaming community that you have. And so eventually some guys decided, you know, we could take this up a notch with regards to competitiveness. And they started formulating, um, a master's tournament, which was, uh, hosted a couple of times at least in in North Carolina, I believe, or Virginia. And uh, what happened was you broke the re- uh, the country of the United States up into regions. You had Texas, and then you had Southeast, Northeast, um, California, kind of West Coast, uh, you know, mountain zone, you know, Denver people, and then, you know, Midwest people. And each region um, had their four or five grand tournaments that they would have every year. And based on uh, the rankings and how you did in those tournaments, uh, rankings would be formulated and people would qualify to play in the Masters tournament, which was, uh, like I said, hosted in North Carolina or Virginia. So what was a regional thing then became more of a national thing. And people from all over the United States who enjoyed playing Warhammer Fantasy a lot and liked to play competitively in tournaments, they started getting together even more. And that was something cool about the the GTs was you would you would have mostly Texas people in the Texas GTs, but then you would you would definitely have people who would travel from other cities in the United States. Definitely guys from Chicago or San Francisco who I know of who would who would come in to play GTs because they develop friendships and they were willing to travel to play Warhammer Fantasy. And so there was definitely a national nationwide level of community that developed with competitive tournament play. Yeah. Uh, it's, if I was definitely more on the outside, did not know most of the communities as well, just got connected to it through a buddy of mine who was very involved. Um, but it was, it was cool to see. And I did get to, to meet people that way and, and see some of it. I was more one of the locals who went to the, the close one, although I did travel for a few, um, yeah, I only uh, ever I only ever went out of state for a Carnival of Chaos. We had a we had a tournament in New Orleans one time, and me and Casey and Ed drove over from Houston, and most of the Houston guys. Uh, it was a lot of fun because New Orleans is a great town to host a convention and have people come to party for the weekend. Which, you know, it's frankly speaking, a lot of what uh, drew. Uh, there was a, certainly a percentage of people in the competitive GT circuit who were there to play Warhammer, throw some dice and, uh, engage in, you know, kind of drinking and 
partying and having fun with their friends in destination cities like New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. So there's different types of players who come to a tournament like that, like the, the larger TT. I mean, your your local tournament, you're generally going to get random players show up that you don't know, who you didn't even know were in the town and played there. But you're also going to see a lot of the guys that you play with at your local game store or that you've at least seen online or, or you know, you have some sort of connection to or if there's multiple ones, you know each other. Yeah, the, uh, so the one-day tournaments, yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be talking more about the the tournaments that you travel for. Um, although the one that we're going to is a one day tournament, but um, because there's so few, I think we have a few more people traveling for it than you might normally uh, from across Texas. So um, the different t- types of lists or people you see is there are going to be some people at a tournament that I don't know, could be labeled tryhards or whatever, or, they're bringing whack lists or ring win at all cost lists, right? They, some of these like are skilled players that just want to win and they're taking whatever is the strongest list around, or uh, they could just be people that don't have a lot of experience and know this net list. It's supposed to be pretty good. You'll have a couple of those at a tournament. Um, but generally they, I mean, would you say it's generally true that they don't win? Um, I'd say people who won fell into two groups. There was definitely some try hard, take the most, uh, optimized list possible people who knew what they were doing with it and they would win sometimes, but then you would definitely have guys like Justin Belusic with his Bretonians who would win tournaments, who took middle of the road type lists and were able to, um, win tournaments based on their knowledge of the game and their, their abilities as generals with not terrible lists, but not the best list. And I think that's a happy place to try to get to is a Swedish comp list that kind of falls into the middle of the gradation where you're very pleased with yourself if you win, but um, you know, you're not beating your opponents with a win at all cost list. Yeah, I think what you find is um, there, you know, you will see a lot more of whatever the army book is that's supposed to be really powerful. So you're going to see a lot of wood or high elves at a list or at a tournament. Um, but you're also going to see players that have just played a certain army forever and they're really good at it and they know it well. They also know the other armies well because they keep up to date and watch and play against them. But they they know their army well, and so you do see. You know, armies that are middling, that that do place well, you know, they may not win every time or whatever, but they, they do well because the person playing them knows what they're doing and goes to these tournaments often. Yeah. So if you broke down like a tournament of 100 players, um, a GT, let's say, I would say about a third of them are there with lists that are non-competitive they are lists that are fluffy. They are lists that that person enjoys. Um, I wouldn't say these people don't know what they're doing. I would say these people. <laughs> I would say these people know what they're doing generally, and they've made a conscious decision that yeah. I'm not that really worried about winning. I like to paint. I like to play. I don't really care how that much how the games go i'm gonna i'm gonna give my best effort but at the same time like i'm gonna bring 
you know, the Snotling Horde because I like the Snotling Horde. And right. it's not that good. I, I understand that. And then you'll have newbies, of course, who have unoptimized lists and they don't really know what they're doing. And, and that's the models they had. That's the models they had. And, you know, they're unpainted or, you know, whatever. And that's going to make up a... You can find some people with some really beautiful armies in this section because, like, they love something like you said, the Snotling Horde. And so they've painted this beautifully painted army that they've played since 6th edition or whatever that's gorgeous and that they just haven't changed the the components of it. Yeah. And so some of those could be really pretty. Yeah, and you'll have people bring their Tomb Kings and you'll have people bring their, you know, their, their various types of lists. And there's a certain percentage of them who don't, quite know what they're doing or they're bringing a fluffy list that really doesn't have an ability to win no matter how well you play it because just math and you know it's just not gonna it's not gonna work basically no matter how perfectly you play it and so that's about a third of players and then the next uh 40 of players i'd say are bringing somewhere uh in the swedish comp range of like six to fifteen which um, is a middle road, which is like this list has some of the more powerful tools, but it's also a conscious decision clearly by the list maker to say, yes, I'm taking some powerful tools, but I'm not selling out completely to make, to take the most powerful tools and to take it in abundance. I'm going to try to win, but I'm not going to try to beat you over the head with the most powerful combos or the most um, min maxing, min maxing type thing. Um, so that's probably another 40% of people I'd say. So now we're up to like 73%. And then there's about 25%, maybe less, maybe 15% of players who really sell out with the, I'm going to take the best list I possibly can. And I'm going for blood. I want to win best general. And I don't care if I, if I take the most obnoxious list and people hate me, it doesn't matter. I'm going to win and I'm going to try to win. And, you know, there is, there is a level of kind of stigma to, you know, stigma surrounding kind of, if you bring a win at all costs list that tends to kind of go with a personality, you know, it's not, it's hard to differentiate those things sometimes, you know, it's, if your attitude is, I don't care how big a beat stick this is and I don't care if my opponent has any fun and I'm just going to drive them into the ground and get a 20-0 victory. That's an attitude that is going to uh, not be received well necessarily and you might not be considered the most pleasant opponent or somebody people want to spend time with. Well, there, there's just a reason why like most most tournaments would have a packet that would have certain items that are forbidden. And it's not because most players are going to take those items. It's because there's a small portion of players that are going to take those items and those items make for not fun games. Um, And so like there are players that will play that way and you just, you know, they, they come and generally they, they come and play at the tournament and they're going to come and play it every year's tournament. It's not like the tournament organizers usually, kick anyone out there is a mechanism for that there's sportsmanship scores uh, but that's not necessarily about army list that's about was this person you know truly rude was this person 
you know, rules lawyering, uh, failing they, to play by the rules. Were they picking uh, up their dice real quick? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you couldn't see them and all that stuff. So, so like proper etiquette is if you roll a handful of dice, say you got 20 dice in your hands, you roll the dice and you and your opponent, if you're at a GT, generally know what you need to roll and you pick up your misses. So that way your opponent can see, okay, those are the hits and that's, they've got the proper amount of dice that were hits or wounds and they picked up their misses and now we can all see and be transparent. And then, but of course, etiquette is different amongst people and you can't govern that, you know, really strictly, you know, if people are, you know, picking up dice quickly or something and you just kind of have to trust them. It's just kind of a etiquette and rudeness type of thing. Yeah. So you mentioned comp. I just want to briefly make sure everyone understands what comp is or Swedish comp in, in Texas, what we used uh, to determine just the power level of, of uh, lists. And it really didn't have anything to do with whether or not you could bring a list. You could bring a list of whatever power level, but um, a lot of times it determined matching in the first round. Um, you, you plug in according to this list composition uh, document uh, and it, it outputs puts out a score roughly between zero and 20, although some can be higher than 20 and that's, they're a really bad list if they're higher than 20 and some can be below zero and they're a Uber beat stick if they're below zero. So um, like for this tournament, what's your, your list sitting at? I think to be clear, like my Mike is playing a list. That's a fun list. That's competitive can win with that's, that's fun though. Yeah, this is one of the harder lists I've ever taken to a tournament. Uh, in the past, I've uh, been around 8 to 10. Uh, this Dark Elf list is at about a 5, which is about as low oh, yeah. as I'm willing uh, to go. Yeah, so so that's a that's a strong list. Uh, now, also, Dark Elves were, were one of the last books uh, produced. And so with some of the last books, they didn't have as much time to set this comp style. So sometimes, like Wood Elves are off i think um and dark elves may be off too so it's hard to know exactly um but i was so my list is more of the if i win a game uh i'll be pretty happy because uh, just the way the list is set up so i'm at a 19 um and so you can just see those those two different styles i guess or two different um approaches that are both i think i hope fun i hope that when people play me they don't feel disappointed you know, if, if they do bring a five and I've got a 20 or a 19, I hope that they still have fun and can see the enjoyment with it. Um, but there is something to trying to be in that middle uh, area because that way you're not giving, you can give someone a bad game by beat sticking them, but you can also give someone a bad game by making a list. that's just not fun to play because the other person never had a chance. I don't think mine's that, that case because of the way I made it, but we'll see. Yeah, and, and to be clear, like optimized lists, like in an empire list, you know, three great cannons, a level four of light, and a unit of archers, um, you know, a, a horde of knights or a horde of halberds, a steam tank uh, with a uh, what's the thing that gives them plus one to hit the chariot? Uh, oh yeah, the the uh, yeah, yeah the light the luminarch or whatever it is yeah luminarch of if you have like a list like with two or three or four can or you know three or four cannons a steam tank uh all one plus armor saves demigriffs knights uh light council 
you know, in a unit of skirmishing archers, you're, you're going to get down in like to the negatives. You're going to get down into like the negative two, negative three. So five is five is good, but uh, it definitely gets it gets it gets down to about negative five. Yeah. All right. So that's a little bit about uh, tournaments etiquette. Mike mentions some of the etiquette. I always think remembering that the the key component of any tournament is you want your opponent to have fun, not because you like accepted them breaking rules or doing whatever or you gave them a win that they didn't deserve but like you just want to be uh, a fun player you you've got the the dice thing that mike mentioned um i think stating the table state is really helpful like okay so i'm this far from you um so that means to charge me you're going to need to roll an 11 is that correct right and just saying things like that i think can be very helpful because it means that when that person then on their turn, if they measure and they say, oh, I only need a 10 to charge or whatever, you've already talked about it, right? So you'd say, well, you know, I, when we talked about it, I had this movement, I was 11 to move or to be there, or I would have stopped farther back, right? So like, I think stating table state can be helpful as a good etiquette rule. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Communication, uh, just like in a lot of facets of life, is just really helpful such that people have the same expectations as they move forward uh, in the game. And there's just clear understandings of like, especially in 8th edition where you can pre-measure, it's like, okay, so just so you know, like, I think I'm in your flank. Like, do you agree? You know, such yeah. that, okay, if I need to move over another inch or two and I have the movement, or I'll reconsider the move altogether if I don't have the movement, just so exactly. you can see what I'm trying to do. I, I'm trying to get out of your line of sight, so let's get the arc and make sure that we're both on the same page. You know, it's not trying to be like, oh, well, you know, uh, I got you. you. I got your clip. I clipped your base right there with my arc, and now I can see you. And yeah, right. I mean, there is some merit to that. It's like, well, it's a competitive thing, but it's like I, I personally don't subscribe to that. I, I want you know, people to effectuate what they're trying to do. And I don't want to try to catch them on like a little, you know, technicality, you know, type of right. thing. And, and there's, but there's both the technicality side of like, you know, did, did, uh, you know, are you, did you make a mistake and you put it there and you were trying to get outside the arc, but you didn't, there's that technicality side. There's also just like you're jostling and hitting stuff. And so, you know, there's nothing worse than having it set up where, you think you're out of line of sight, they thought you were in it, and then a model gets knocked over, and is this model in line of sight or not, right? If you've stated table state, then you know they were out of line of sight or they weren't, and you don't have to have that problem. Yeah, I think it, it's great to be communicative and work with your opponent uh, just right. so you have that situation. Some people, you know, you, get, you show up to a tournament, you've never met the person before, and you know, they, they're going to have different expectations. Maybe, maybe they don't want to, uh, you know, communicate like that. And, but hopefully they do, um, because yeah. you're going to show up to a tournament, you're going to get all types of people in a war gaming community. Um, you know, right. so, some levels of, uh, awkwardness, some level, some people are really, uh, bon homie and they're really easy to get along with some people. They're not going to really want to talk very much. And then, so it just, it runs the gamut with regards to social interactions. And if they're playing me and they don't want to talk too much, they're in trouble. Ryan's going to talk at them. <laughs> I'm going to talk at them. Uh, but like, so one example of things you can do to really help yourself going into a tournament. So I have a weird army with a lot of weird interactions with movement. 
um, but also things that can surprise you. And so one thing that I've tried to do because we have the discord for the, where the tournament uh, organizer is, is I've asked specific FAQ questions because the Wood Elf Army book doesn't have an FAQ from GW, but specific questions that would uh, will come up in my games. Things about uh, how I can move in forests, what types of forests can I do, whether Forest Strider cancels out certain effects of those forests, and also um, Calendor Stave allows me to um, do a bubble effect where all forests within 12 inches can hit a unit. And so my quest would be, if one of my opponent's units is in two or three forests at the same time, can all three forests hit them? Um, the ruling was that they can, and so what I'm going to do is, now that I have those rulings and understand what the expectations for the uh, tournament are, is uh, even though this is a closed list tournament, I want to make sure that my opponent is not, now this is just me personally, uh, is not going to be tricked by certain effects. I'm not going to tell them what I'm going to do with stuff, but I want them to know how something works. So I want them to know that the Moonstone of the Hidden Way will allow me to move my units. I want them to know that that bubble effect can hit the same unit. Um, and so I, at the beginning of the game, I plan on noting those two things for them. Not everyone agrees that that's what you need to do. And I think at a more competitive tournament, I, I wouldn't. Like if this were a GT. Um, but for this tournament, you know, we're not in, in GTs anymore. I am going to to mention those things because I don't want a, an opponent to, you know, have this surprise you're, you're messed over completely moment. Yeah. Because that's not what this is about. This is about having fun and playing Warhammer fantasy. And if you have a situation where people aren't going to be familiar, Ryan, with what you're trying to do and with the combinations exactly. that you're using. And so they're not going to, they're not going to catch on to this probably naturally. And, this is the game has been dead a long time. You're probably going to have opponents who maybe never even played before. So you don't want to make their experience like they just come to, to, to fight and throw some dice. You know, you don't want to have, Oh, you know, I tricked you into this thing and here's the rule on page 36. And yeah, I win the game. You know, that's just not, right. that's not what you're looking for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and uh, as well, like it, it's a bonus for me in that time saving when we get to that point where I'm like, okay, now I'm going to do essentially 66 strength four attacks. Cause you're in three forests. I don't have to go through the process of proving to them that that's the case and showing them how that's the case and all that stuff. And we're not going to have to, you know, call over a judge because I told them at the beginning, this is what's going to happen. And if they had any questions about it, they could have asked it then. Yeah. Well, your, your trick, like your, un uh, your unorthodox style of play is going to slow you down a little bit because People are going to be confused, I think, by the various combinations that you're trying to do because they're never going to see it. I, I haven't even seen it, so they're just not going to really understand it necessarily. But yeah, it's it's weird. And then my guys will get in combat and hit like pillows, so it'll be okay. But uh, before that, it'll be it'll be weird. Yeah, so I, I think we've explained our yeah. our tournament kind of uh, philosophies and experiences uh, pretty well for the people. Yeah. Um, so we have a couple other user questions. We're not going to uh, get to necessarily all of them. Um, but I, I do want to know, you've mentioned some of your factions. I think I know what the answer is to this question. So I'm actually going to 
switch this around and do it newlywed game style. Uh, your main faction and why did you pick them? So I'm going to tell you, Mike, what I think your main faction is, um, but I don't know why you picked them. At least in my experience, your main faction has been Bretonians. I don't think it's your original main faction. Um, maybe that's goblins. I'm not sure. But I certainly see it as your main faction now. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's a good shout. Um, it's probably the army I've played the most over the last uh, 15 years or so. Okay, why do you, what about them did you love? <laughs> I love the 5th edition colorfulness of a fully painted Bretonian army where each knight has its own heraldry and colors and if someone has a good level of painting, I don't think anything beats a fully painted, well-painted Bretonian army on the tabletop. I think it looks incredible and I think the play style I jive with and uh, I, lo I love the knights um, just that's all there is to it, I guess. Yeah, it is a. It's certainly a beautiful, a beautiful army. How about you, Ryan? What's uh, what's your, what's your favorite army? Well, I haven't played my favorite army since uh, 2015, 2014, whatever. Uh, my favorite army, my main army, is Wood Elves. I love them. Uh, I think they are a blast. I love the movement shenanigans. So this will be my first time playing with them in a long time. But previously, they were the MSU, multiple small unit, move and shoot, a lot of arrows. I played that back when they were still using their 6th edition army book in 8th ed, and uh, it was it could still be frustrating to play it against because it was hard to catch, but it also did very little damage, and it really struggled to kill full units. Um, so that was kind of the, the drawback. I loved that, um, but it is absolutely 100% too powerful with the 8th edition book. Like, no joke, not fun. Uh, so I don't really play it anymore. So, um, hopefully I'll be able to build a type of wood elf list, not just with this forest spirit one, but in the future with eternal guards and some of the wildwood rangers that are not as good, um, decreasing the number of bows significantly, um, that that's fun. Um, as I, and, and really I have a lot of unpainted ones. I have a full 2,500 point painted army, but I'm going to redo it. Um, and I have a lot of unpainted ones that I can start on and get going before I soup the rest. So that's that's my main army. Yeah, you, you and I have had this conversation just outside of the game store, uh, you know, just late night talks and just kind of like I wouldn't show up on a Friday night or spend half my day on a Saturday to show up to play an MSU Wood Elf Army. I just don't <laughs> think it's worth six hours of my life yeah. to like go through the process of driving out to a store, playing a game, driving home, taking all that time and effort when it's just, it's trying to catch a couple units. It's not, it doesn't engender a fun experience. And I don't mean to disparage all of the people who play them. And, but it is frustrating that you have to, I think you have to think about play styles and like enjoyment for other people. And like mm -hmm. you obviously do that, but like you can go to tournaments and you'll run into what else or dwarves. And it's just like, I understand you love these armies for various reasons, lore reasons, uh, aesthetic reasons, uh, maybe for the play style reasons, but you gotta, at some level prioritize playing an army that your opponent 
is going to have fun with because this is about everybody having a good time and not just you. And I think it's really a challenge with dwarves and wood elves to have a situation where your opponent can have some fun because there was definitely times like you'll see at GTs or, or serious tournaments where like a Bretonian army would just literally hide behind a hill and play for a draw rather than even try to cross the field into a dwarf army. And like, you just can't have that. And so like, if you like to play dwarves, that's nice, but like you just got to move on, I think, and, 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 and build an army that is really has the ability to engender a, a fun game for everybody. Yeah. That's I think, kind of so, so we've talked about this before. One thing I've said about it is I think wood elves can do something that's important in games, which is, uh, you you need in games a couple factions or a couple list types that can force um, other lists or factions or whatever to have to limit their min max or limit the way they can go all in on something um, because they play so differently. And I think what else can be that in this game, except there are some problems with it in that number one, the wood elves are the only list except for maybe dark elf heavy cav like just all cav um but even then i don't know that they do it as well as wood elves because their infantry doesn't um but that that play that completely different style so um, because they're the only one nobody's gonna completely alter their their list style because they might play one of 16 factions the other component of it is that um and you've mentioned this before is that there are some armies that just don't have the, the the rules. They don't have the units to be able to deal with what wood elves can bring. And so that's the other problem. Um, I think they could theoretically be very different and play very different and still work in that function and, and perhaps be fun um, for, for most people. But as the game stands, I don't think they can just because some armies can't deal with it at all. And, no army is going to come built to play against them because that doesn't work against the other 15. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I used to play dwarves in eighth edition and it was a similar thing. It was just, I would show up to a tournament and people, you know, they don't want to play you really very much. And they, you know <laughs> that they don't, they're not like, yay, I get to play the dwarves now or yay. I get to play the wood elves now. It's like, Orcs and goblins? Yeah, everybody wants to play orcs and goblins. They're a lot of fun. No matter what happens, you're going to have a lot of fun. But dwarves and what else is just kind of an eye roll and a groan, like, I have to play that, you know? And it's like, you don't want to be that, you you know, if you're a person of thoughtfulness and good conscience, you don't want that to be the experience of someone, you know? Right. Or even like people just talk, even if they're not playing that list, they're like, oh, I had to play two dwarf lists in a row. Yeah, and people just say that. Right? Like, you hear that often. Those are real complaints. It's just like, hey, Rick, you know, whoever the tournament organizer is like, I got two what else lists in a row on Saturday. Like, you know, come on, man. Can I, can I not play them again? Yeah. Can I get like an Orcs and Goblins? Could I get, you know, something else? You know, it's just, you don't. So, yeah. you know, I would just, I wouldn't bring them, uh, you know, if it, that's, I'm sorry to, yeah. to, to our listeners, but that's just how, that's how it is. Yeah. So, uh, and Mike and I have like, we have slight disagreements on uh, some of this stuff, but like pretty much we, we just agree like ultimately, and it comes down to this, you want everybody to have fun playlists that you can have fun with and that others can have fun with. And, you know, some lists are going to allow that some are not. 
when you're playing at home with a buddy and they want you to play that super hard list, great, do that. But not when people are forced to play you. Um, let's see, an, another question uh, that we had, uh, we, we talked a little bit about dwarfs and why people might not playing, like playing against them. Same with wood elves. Uh, someone asked, why does uh, Kugelfang or why does anyone hate uh, dogs of war? Uh, I, I hate dogs of war because uh, I think limiting the number of human factions is a good thing. Um, actually, I don't hate dogs of war. I think dogs of war are fine. I just like mocking factions that don't have army books, um, and I think it's fun. And so I do that because it's fun to me. Do you do uh, that to Chaos Dwarves? I don't remember. I do. I do it as well to Chaos Dwarves. Okay. I call them hipster. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I do that to Chaos Dwarves. I don't do it to Kislev because I actually really like Kislev. So it's super hypocritical of me, and there's no rhyme or reason. I just like joking around yeah i think it's just an inside joke on on the discord um yep. obviously you can pick on them because you know they basically have a ravening horde style six edition list and they were you know half white yeah. you know they're very much like one tenth cooked and uh you can make yeah. fun of them but i think the aesthetic from that range of regiments of renown is uh really appealing and the dark uh, the dogs of war fifth edition army book which which i have is a good read and it's um, there's a lot there, and I think the Warhammer world is a lot better for them. And I think it would be cool if uh, we had more players. But I'm really happy to to make an army myself and to bring it into the local uh, community. And Ryan will get to enjoy playing uh, the dark the dogs <laughs> of war here, maybe in uh, six months or a year. My my dream, actually, the first army I ever wanted to build. Uh, someone mentioned that. Uh, Empire players were always history teachers. Um, so I'm a history teacher and empire was one of the first army lists I wanted to build. And it was because I wanted to do an all cavalry list with the galloper guns as my cannons. And I just thought that would be super cool because the galloper guns looked great. And then I was like, Hey, I'd like to buy some galloper guns. And they were like, we don't produce those anymore. And, uh, you, you know, you couldn't get them at a GW and I didn't know of any game stores that had them. And I wasn't, uh, going on eBay a lot or anything. So I never did that. Um, but I thought it would be fun, you know, knights, inner circle knights, steam tanks. I loved pistoliers, uh, and, and outriders and then some galloper guns. I just, uh, and a war author, you know, that'd be so cool. That would, uh, I'd, I'd still build that. That'd be fun. No, those galloper guns are great. Uh, great minis. Um, I had some back in the uh, early two thousands. I, there was a lot of armies I collected a little bit that kind of in middle school, early high school, that you kind of not sure what happened to them over the years. Maybe you traded them. Maybe you, you know, they were lost into the portals of time. And some of them you still have. But I, I definitely had some Galloper guns. I don't think I, I'm going to use them for the list I'm thinking about with Dogs of War right now. But I'm definitely going to have, uh, you know, blocks of pikes, some knights, some dwarves, some, you know, just all types of little bit of mixing and matching and making it uh, clearly unique and clearly not the empire. Yeah. Is there like one of the, of the units that you are kind of thinking around as central to yours, like that you're building around? Yeah. So uh, I think in my 2,500 point list that I'm, I'm going to be making, um, I think I'm going to have a mercenary general, which is the Lord level fighter uh, in a unit of knights, about 10, with a BSB in there. And that's going to kind of be the main 
uh, punching unit. It only has a two up armor save, so it's not quite as good as uh, Empire Knights. But uh, I'm using the Volans, Venenators, uh, Knights, and I'm going to use the Ludwig, Ludwig Schwarzhelm, Empire BSB, and maybe use Borgia the Besieger, maybe use uh, the Mercenary General model. And then I'm going to have two big units of 30 pikemen each. One's going to be Leopold's Leopard Company, uh, which I've got about 20 of them painted. And then I think the other 30 are going to be the Alctani Fellowship. And so it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to look good. I, the Leopard Company's really been working out so far. So Okay. Well, this has kind of been on one of the last user questions, which was like, um, what what army project have you always wanted? Um, to do and like what conversion or themed army have you wanted to do, but it was too costly or impractical or you just haven't done it. So we've kind of talked about like, I feel like a themed army for you is that dogs of war army. Is there another one with conversions that you've always wanted or is that kind of your answer? No, I've never been a conversions guy. Um, I know some people really get into that. Um, but I've always been kind of a metals mini guy, a metal minis guy. And that's just less conducive to conversion. I, I guess I'm not creative enough, but uh, I like kind of the standard print that comes out of GW. What about you? Yeah, I don't think I'll do another big conversion army other than that one that I did with the Warriors of Chaos, which I still have a lot to do on them. I've only got about 2,000 paint, points painted, um, but the I, I made, um, let's see, the some Forsaken out of uh, the Carrick Acolytes with extra heads and arms. I did the chosen with the oh what are they called the not the best gores what are the zinch gores uh, zangors there we go with the zangors um i'm doing the warriors are going to be the cypher lords from the war cry game and they're also the ones that are on chariots i'm using zinch burning chariots instead of the chaos warriors chariots i'm doing my own war altar with uh using the sphinx from the aos game and let's see, uh, I'm doing, I'm creating what, what are, what are the corn juggernauts of corn? No, they're not the juggernauts. What are they? The skull crushers, the skull crushers, but I'm doing zinch ones using like Dracolith or something, Draco something from AOS Stormcast with Zangors riding them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing the knights are all on screamers and they're Zangors. So that's my big conversion army. Some of it's already done. Um, it hasn't, it's more expensive than buying it outright. Um, but I, I haven't done anything that's like, Hey, I need three kits to make these 10 guys. Right. I'm not doing any of that. This, this will probably be the only conversion army I do. I'm not great at it. It was fun. The, the colors I chose were, are rough, but I think it looks good. Um, so that's, that's it. I can't think of any other army that I'm really doing a conversion of. It did teach me some good skills that I've used in other ways, though. Yeah, our buddy Lance on the Discord, he does a lot of conversions. And oh man, your yeah. uh, your conversions with the the Char army uh, have been good. And you know, it's it's cool to uh, see Zinch or Char, as I like to call him, uh, bless your figures. Listen, listen to an upcoming uh, podcast. Yeah, we're uh, we'll be talking about Char. But uh, what I like to do is is a little different than off the beaten path. Is I, I collect minis mostly from like the eighties and nineties and early two thousands. So I'm doing orcs right now, and they're all you know early nineties sculpts. And I have the old Marauder Giant, and I have the old Stone Trolls, and 
So, so you're saying they're not the orcs that are sticking their rears out and uh, doing all that weird stuff. They're not plastic, so they're not. They're not the plastic. They're thing. old, and so that's kind of the flavor of my armies, and that's something I really enjoy. Yeah, yeah, it looks great, and uh, it certainly has its own aesthetic, which is a cool thing about Warhammer being as old as it is, and you can just see different styles, different play styles and uh, model styles and everything. So it's, it's cool to see the different things that people love, right? Some it's conversion, others it's these older styles and some it's the new, right? And they love that uh, Brian loves painting in the box art style and he's, he really nails it, right? His orcs look like GW orcs off the box and his dark elves, the, you know, the witch elves he's done look the same way. So uh, I like all those different styles, yeah. So uh, I think that's all we have for today. This uh, this brief Hearthstone is uh, longer than expected, but hopefully you enjoy it and learned a little bit about uh, tournaments and how that works and also just our philosophy on how we play. To all those of you who are listening, unless you're playing Dogs of War or Chaos Dwarves, I hope you have a good day. Yeah, we'll uh, see you guys next time on the Herdstone, and we'll uh, give you an update on how me, Brian, and Ryan had done at WarGamesCon uh, coming up here next weekend. Oh, now you have to give a, uh, a expectation. What's your prediction? How many games am I going to win out of three? My prediction on games is you finish none, and <laughs> that uh, once the games are called in turn three... <laughs> I have killed nothing. You win too. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, a lot of a lot of hope. For I think me. you're All gonna right. trick some people with your forest shenanigans, and they're gonna lose. They're gonna lose their main units to some uh, unpleasant nonsense, and they're not gonna like playing you. <laughs> what, uh, there is a a 100 percent chance that in at least one game, uh, dangerous train tests kill more of my opponent's models than I do. So. <laughs> But we'll, we'll update everyone uh, with how we do next time we're uh, on the podcast. Yep. See you then. All right. Well, that's all we have for today. We hope that next month you'll gather around the Hearthstone with us again. <laughs>